0: Of uh, review on what we've covered so far, um, the the letter of First John is written by John, the same guy that wrote the Gospel of John, the second and third letters of John, and the Book of Revelation. John was one of the twelve disciples of Jesus. He was the youngest of the twelve disciples. He was the only one among Jesus' disciples who was uh, who was not martyred. He went on to live uh, and and died of a natural causes. Um, he was a very old man, probably about ninety five or so, I think, when he died. Um, John. Uh, also, when he writes this letter, the reason why he's writing this letter is to address heresy that has crept up in the early church, and this heresy uh, is wrapped around a group of people that, that became known in the early church as the docetists. The docetists were people that denied that Jesus ever became real flesh and blood, that he, um, that God came down and entered physical material, that he became flesh and blood. They denied that because they believed that physical material was evil, and so how could a holy God inhabit something that was evil. And so they denied that. They said rather that Jesus only seemed or he only appeared to come in human flesh. And so as you read through 1 John, you'll see over and over and over again um, John re- uh, referring to the fact that, hey, look, true believers in Christ are people that believe that Jesus came in the flesh, that he inhabited the flesh, that he uh, died on the cross, and that his physical body was resurrected again. And so John points that out. Now, there's some other things that the Docetists believed that weren't correct and we identified a couple of those things last week that they taught in first john chapter 1 this week we're jumping forward a couple of chapters to identify probably the most difficult passage in all of the bible Yeah, so I'm excited about today. So anyhow, um, so we're going to go to 1 John chapter 3. We're going to see another one of uh, of the teachings of the Docetists captured here in 1 John chapter 3. We're going to read verse 6, and then we're going to read verses 9 and 10. So as we do each week, I'm going to ask you to stand, and we're going to read beginning at verse 6. So 1 John chapter 3, beginning at verse 6. All right, here we go. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Verse 9. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God nor is anyone who does not love his brother. You may be seated. And you're saying, Gordon, please save me from those, those verses. What's going on in these scriptures? It sounds like John has laid out here the impossible task of saying that you've got to live free of sin. So let's walk through these verses together and see what John's really saying, why he's saying the things that he's saying. All right, so we'll begin at verse 6. It says, no one who lives in Jesus keeps on sinning. And then he repeats himself. He says, no one who continues in sin has either seen him or even knows Jesus, he says. And so the Docetists, apparently, one of the things that they thought was that they were living amongst the Christians and perhaps even attending their churches, and not only did they deny that Jesus was real flesh and blood, but they also had an ongoing sin issue in their life. And so he's pointing this out as an indicator that, hey, look, here are some people who we can identify as not true believers because they have this continuous habitual sin going on in their life. You say, well, Gore wouldn't the other Christians, uh, not just the docetists, but the people that John's writing this letter to in Asia Minor, wouldn't the other Christians in those churches have this same sin problem? Wouldn't they also have sin in their lives? Absolutely they would have. Uh, you bet they did. The difference is in the Greek rendering of this word sin, the word for there is hamart which means to miss the mark, and the tense of the verb suggests, and this is why the NIV uh, translators uh, put this there, as continuing to sin, this idea of habitual sin going on in these believers' lives. So the idea that John is communicating here is that this person is sinning and they just don't care about it. Like, God, I know that it's wrong, but I don't care, I'm going to do it anyway. They've gotten to a point in their walk where they're just not remorseful about it. They've gotten to a point where they're not regretful about it. They've gotten to a point where their conscience seems to be silent, where there's no guilt at all about what it is that they're doing. They just lie, they cheat, they steal, and they do all of that without a second thought. They continue to sin. They keep on sinning, okay? Verse 9. No one who is born of God, a Christian, will continue to sin. So he's kind of restating verse 6 here. And why will they not continue to sin, he says, because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. Now, what is this seed that John is talking about here? Well, the seed that John is referring to is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, God himself. And so the Holy Spirit enters into, when you become a believer, enters into your physical body. Um, when you confess your sins, when you put your faith and trust in the work that Jesus did on the cross on your behalf, and you put your trust in that work, then, John, then what happens is the Holy Spirit comes and dwells inside of you. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19, Paul says, Do you not know? Because apparently they didn't. That your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, that God dwells inside of you. And this was the great promise that God had made through the Old Testament, that at one time he was going to dwell in the midst of his people, tabernacle, right? But And then he came in the person of Jesus and dwelt, scanu, there in the, in the, uh, in the Greek, John chapter 1 and verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And now with the blessed Holy Spirit come, God now dwells within us. Our physical bodies have become the temple, right? Because what is a temple? A temple is the place where God dwells. And so that's what Paul's saying here is do you not know that your body is a temple? It's the place where God dwells. Um, so the Holy Spirit in that verse is the seed that is planted inside of you at the moment that you are born of God. And what does the Holy Spirit do? While the Holy Spirit's inside of you, well the Holy Spirit convicts you and I of sin. John says in his gospel, John chapter sixteen and verse eight, he says, When the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin. Listen to David talking about the Holy Spirit's presence in his own life and how the Holy Spirit's been working in him. He, after he sins with Bathsheba, he writes Psalm chapter 32 and verse 3. When I kept silent about what I did, here's what resulted from that: my bones wasted away. He says, my groaning, uh, through my groaning all day long. He feels this. Verse 4. For day and night, he says, God, your hand. Was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped like in the heat of summer. So David's walking around. The guy can't eat. The guy can't sleep. He's feeling just this tremendous weight of the sin that he's committed. He feels remorse about this. And this is the Holy Spirit causing that to happen. Verse five, he says, Then finally, you know, I gave in and I acknowledged my sin to you. And I did not cover up my iniquity any longer. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. What's happening here is that the Holy Spirit is laying a serious case of guilt and remorse and regret on David that he should feel, that is right for David to feel because of what he had done, a conviction on his heart. And so finally David cries out, uncle, right? Uncle, okay, I, I'm broken. I can't, I can't stand it anymore. And he cries out to God and God forgives David. That's what's happening there. Listen, when the seed of, the, of God, the Holy Spirit is in you, You can sin, you can sin daily, but the result of that will be remorse, the result of that because of the Holy Spirit, because of the seed's presence in you, will be regret, there will be a conscience, a guilt that rests on you, and it's something that eventually there will be a head-on collision between you and God with regard to that behavior. You say, Gordon, well, what if I've got a particular area in my life where I struggle, and what if it's kind of a habitual thing? I mean, does that mean that I'm no longer a Christian? Is that what John's saying here? No, not at all. John says earlier in his letter, 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, but I'm going to check out verse 8 for just a second. I don't think they have that one, but I'm going to tell you about it. Verse 8, we covered it last week. He said, hey, look, if anybody says they're without sin, that person's not only a liar, but they make God out to be a liar. And then he goes on to say, verse 9. So John's very aware that we have sin in our lives. Because he just told them, if you say you're not without sin, you're a liar. So John's very aware that we have sin in our life and that we do sin. Everybody does. You ever rolled a stop sign? Probably did it on the way to work or on the call work. He did it on the way to church this morning, right? So uh, anyhow, but we all sin. We do that. We do it every day. Um, uh, So, but but then John offers this. He says, verse nine. He says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and and just and will forgive us our sins and will purify us. From all unrighteousness. Friends, God will forgive sins. There's no limit to the amount of sin that God will forgive. Please hear that this morning. There's no limit to the amount of sin that God will forgive. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5 and verse 20, he says, hey look, where sin abounds, where sin uh, increased, grace increased all the more. As my professor in college used to say to us, he says, where sin comes in truckloads, grace comes in trainloads. Praise the Lord for that, right? That no matter how much we sin, that God will continue to forgive us. This is what Jesus was talking about in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 22. He said, I tell you not Seven times, how many times you're supposed to give, but 77 times. The point that Jesus is making there is that you're supposed to forgive, you're supposed to keep forgiving, and you just keep forgiving as long as the sin keeps coming because that's how God the Father treats his relationship with you. If you sin a thousand times, God will forgive you a thousand times. When sin comes in truckloads, when sin increases and when sin abounds, grace comes in trainloads. Friends, that's the way God's grace, that's the way God's forgiveness. Works. Praise the Lord for that this morning, right? Amen. Again, what is at issue is not that these docetists are sinning. What's at issue is that there is no confession. There is no admission of the fact that they have sinned. They've come to a point in their perhaps walk with Jesus where remorse has gone out the door where regret has disappeared, where this sense of guilt and conviction over what they have done. Yeah, they sin, we all sin, but they've come to this place of just, hey, I'm going to do what I want to do, and I don't care that I'm doing it, I'm just going to do it anyway. And so as a result of that, uh, John says, hey, look, they may say that they're Christians, but they're really not. Um, Let's finish out these verses, verse 10. This is how we know. Who the children of God are. I'm clear what kind of a topic we're talking about here, right? This is how we can identify the reals from the phonies. He says, This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Um, anyone who does not do what is right, he's talking there, going back to staying in context, right? Not right all the time, but he's talking about habitual, ongoing, no remorse, no regret, no guilt, no conviction over it. He says, Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. Now, I want to state for the record that just because a person has ongoing, unremorseful sin in their life, that is not a cause for them to lose their salvation. I want to say that for the record. That just because a person has ongoing, unremorseful sin going on, habitual sin going on in their life, that is not a cause for them to lose their salvation. That is merely a result of them moving toward or having lost their salvation very important distinction here Um, I want to be clear about that uh, that Paul is or or John is sharing here indicators that salvation has been lost not the cause of having lost it okay very very important distinction Um, you say well Gordon what's the cause because I really want to know that great question right so let's take a look flip over in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 2 Verses 8 through 9, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9. Paul says here, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, verse 9, so that no one can boast. Friends, we didn't get our salvation because we performed well. It's not why we got saved. That's not why Jesus forgave us of our sins, and that's not why Jesus is going to allow us into heaven, because we did a good job. That's not why we're going to get to heaven. It is a gift from God. And Paul could not be more clear about that here. We put our trust in the work that Jesus did on the cross, and we trust that that work was enough. Not that Jesus died on the cross and I got to add some recycling to it. Not that Jesus died on the cross and I got to help old lady cross the street. Not that Jesus died on the cross and I got to teach Sunday school. Not that Jesus died on the cross and you fill in the blank, right? If I do enough good stuff and I add Jesus' work on the cross, then maybe God will accept me when I get to heaven. Friends, That's how Muslims think. That's how Mormons think. That's how Hindus think. They're trying to earn God's favor. They're trying to earn their way into the good graces of their God. That is not the God of the Bible. That is not who Jesus was. Jesus died on the cross. His work on the cross was sufficient to save you from your sins. You don't have to add something else to what Jesus did. He said, it is finished. It's done. You know, Jesus or Paul had the same conversation with the people in Galatians. If you flip over in your Bible, Galatians chapter three, they're having the same tr- struggle. He says to them, Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, he says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who's got a hold of your mind? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to know one just think one thing from you all. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law? Did you cut did, did the Holy Spirit enter into you? Did you become a believer because you did good stuff? Because you observed the law of Moses? He said, Or did you get it by believing? What you heard. You put your faith and trust in the work that Jesus did. That's how you got saved, he says. Verse 3, are you so foolish now? After beginning with faith, after beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Like I got Jesus and I got saved, but now I'm going to keep and maintain my salvation by performance. So I got saved by grace, but I'm going to be continuing in my relationship with God because of how well I perform. I I mean, he's asking that question. Verse 4, he says, "'Have I suffered so much for nothing?' been traveling around, getting beat on the back, thrown out of town, and I do all that for nothing. Y'all are throwing everything I taught you out the window. If it really was for nothing, verse 5, Does God give you his spirit, you become a believer, and work miracles among you because you observe the law, you do good stuff, or because you believe what you heard? Which is it? it How did you get it, and how do you keep it? Do you get it because you believed, but then keep it because you performed well? And Paul's saying, no, no. That's not it at all. You got it because you believed. You maintain it. You keep it because you believe. That's how you get or how you keep um, your salvation. Um, flip over to 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1. It says, The Spirit clearly says that in latter times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. So there's some people who are in the faith, it says and that Paul says, hey, look, they will in latter times abandon the faith, so they have left the faith. How do you abandon something that you were never a part of? Apparently they did. Well, let's see how they did it. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. Paul writing to the believers in Corinth, he says, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. There's the message about getting saved by grace through faith, which you received, on which you have taken your stand. You believed in this, he says, verse 2. Here it comes. By this gospel you are saved if, if, keyword if. Everybody say if. If. All right. You hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. Verse 3. For what I received I passed on to you, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Verse 4, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. Friends, while bad performance does not disqualify your salvation, wrong belief will. You say, how do I lose my salvation? You stop believing in those essential parts of the gospel. He just lined them out there in verse three, and in verse four, you stop believing that Jesus came to the earth to die for your sins, that He died on the cross, and that He was raised again in three days." Friends, you stop believing that, and your salvation is lost to you. John chapter three and verse 16 is a promise that God makes to us, but it's a conditional promise. God said, "For God so loved the world, Jesus said, "For God so loved the world, that He gave His one and only son, that whosoever believed... Would not perish, but would have eternal life. What's the promise God makes us there in that verse? The promise is eternal life. How do we receive that promise, though? What's the condition to receiving the promise? The condition is that you have to Believe. That's, I'm glad y'all are listening this morning. That you have to believe, that you have to hear the information, that you have to accept the information, that you have to turn to Jesus, trust in the work he did on the cross for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Bank on that, not on your good works, not on your good performance, but bank on what Jesus did on the cross for you, and that because of that, you'll have eternal life. Well, friends, when you stop believing, you no longer meet the condition. To receive the promise. And that's what Paul is talking about here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and 1 Timothy chapter 4. And then Paul says there that what you have to do to continue to believe is that, again, Jesus died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. Paul says if you deny those essentials about who Jesus was, then you disqualify yourself. You no longer meet the condition to receive God's promise. So let me best say again just to be clear. Habitual sin does not disqualify you from heaven. That's the good news. It's merely an indicator that you're heading down a wrong road. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 18 says these words. Back to our letter. John says, Dear children, this is the last hour as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming. Even now many Antichrists have come, many false teachers. Verse 19, They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us, for if they had belonged to us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Notice, and this is the key here between John Wesley and John Calvin and their arguments, right? That they, all, that they had for that's still been going on between Wesleyan Arminians and Calvinists for hundreds of years. John never said they never belonged to us. For me, that was like a really great point. I, I, I mean, I, I know, I'm kind of like hang out in the theology class for y'all. That was like, yeah, okay, whatever. But I mean, you know, it's those little nitpicky stuff. It's those little hair-splitting type of stuff that says, hey, look, uh, the Calvinists want to say that they never belonged to us. but That's not what the scripture says. John merely says that they did not belong to us. Talking about these docetists. Okay. All right, well, that's, uh, that's all I want to do with this stuff today. Um, and so that means it's time for us to ask our most important question, what difference does all this make to my life? Um, you say, Gordon, I mean, great theology lesson. I appreciate your passion for this today. Um, but, I mean, how's this helped me in my everyday life? Well, let's talk about that. You know, as your pastor, I want for you to feel safe. And I want for you to feel secure about your eternal life. I want for you to feel safe and secure about your eternal life. And what we learn today from the scriptures is that your whether or not you get to go to heaven is not based on your performance, whether it's really good or subpar. Your eternal destiny, whether or not you get into heaven, is not based on your performance. God's not going to say, one day, you know, somebody's not going to come. People do this, right? They come around from church. They got the little, the little sin meter, and they walk up to Gordon, and they're tick, like, tick, 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 and things start getting louder as they get closer and closer to me, right? And it's like, well, you know, maybe he's getting a little bit too much there. Maybe the scales are starting to tip a little bit in the other direction. Maybe Gordon's getting ready to reach his quota, and all of a sudden he's going to be out, right? He was in. Now he's going to be out. And that's not the way the gospel works. It is not based. Your eternal life is not based on your Performance. Rest in God's mercy. Experience God's grace fresh and new today. That God loves you, God claims you, you are His child. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that marvelous good news that you're going to be in heaven because you put your faith and your trust in the work that Jesus did on the cross, not because you were good enough for Jesus to want to save you or because you were good enough that when you get to heaven's gates that maybe uh, uh, John or Peter or whoever's standing there at the pearly gate says, okay, well, yeah, you can come in, but I don't know about that guy back there, right? He's not going to hold the meter up to you and go, well, you know, the scales were kind of tipping. It doesn't work like that. God loves you. God shows you his mercy, just like he showed it to David, right? Your salvation is not based in your performance. It's based in the work that Jesus did on the cross. Feel safe and secure. It is finished. Amen? All right. Well, you say, well, Gordon, I mean, what difference then does it make to what kind of an earthly, like, can I just, I'm fine with just sliding in under the wire, right? I mean, I just live however I want to live, and I'll just slide in under the wire, right? I mean, can I just do that? Well, I mean, that's a thought, but no, that doesn't work that way. Um, You're right that the kind of earthly life we live has nothing to do with whether or not we get into heaven, but it does affect what kind of a reception we get when we get there. All right, take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3 beginning at verse 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 beginning at verse 11. Uh, Paul says to the Corinthians, For no one can lay any foundation other than the one that's already been laid, and that's Jesus Christ. We're banking on what Jesus did. He's the foundation of our eternal life. Verse 12, If any man builds on this foundation, builds on Jesus, builds their Christian life on Jesus, maybe they use gold. Maybe they use silver. Maybe you use precious uh, precious gems. Maybe you use wood. Maybe you use hay. Maybe you're into straw. I don't know. Now what? And, and so then he says, Verse 13, That person, Person's work, whatever they use to build with, will be shown for what it is. Now, what Paul is saying here is that there are two kinds of Christian lives that can be built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. The first kind of Christian life that, uh, is the kind that uses gold, that uses silver, that uses precious gems, things that won't uh, uh, get, get burned away. Um, and this represents a Christian life that is characterized by obedience to God, by service for Christ. And then there's a second kind of Christian life that's built on this foundation of Jesus Christ. And that kind of Christian life is one that uses wood and hay and straw. And this represents a Christian life that is characterized by disobedience, a life that's characterized by waywardness, a life that's characterized by living for oneself. Now watch what happens here, verse 13. Each person's work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. Um, It will be revealed with fire... And the fire will test the quality of each man's work. That is how you lived. What you did with the days that you had. Verse 14, if what, he has is, or if what he has built survives the fire, he will receive his reward. Verse 15, but if it's burned up, he will suffer loss when he gets to heaven. He himself will be saved, but only as one who is escaping through the flames. Friends, what God is saying here is that when we get to heaven, he's going to take out his cosmic flamethrower right? and he's going to hose us down and our lives are built, right? It's built on the foundation of Jesus. That ain't going nowhere, right? Our, 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 whether or not we get into heaven is not established on whether we use hay or whether we use straw or whether we use gold to build our lives with, right? But when God gets us to heaven, we're going to be safe and secure in Jesus, but then he's going to hose us down with his flamethrower, and it says that he's going to burn away all of the stuff that was not built on Christ. All the stuff that was not a life that was built in, dis- in, in obedience. A life that was built in surrender to God. A life that was built in pursuing the things of the Lord. And all the other stuff's going to get blown away. And then based on what's left. The gold, the silver, the precious stones. The stuff that didn't get hosed away. right Based on what's left. God will give out rewards. Rewards is talked about all over the Bible. Y'all know that, right? Revelation chapter 22 and verse 12, Jesus said, Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me. I will give to everyone according to what he has done. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 12, um, we're standing before the judgment seat of Christ. He says, the dead were judged, a little bit further down into verse 12, he says, the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. God's going to reward us based on what we did with the life, the energy, the time, the talents, all that stuff that God had given us during our time here on this earth. So, our afterlife and our experience of that afterlife, it'll all be wonderful. I'm looking forward to it. Um, and remember, the afterlife goes on forever. It doesn't, it's not like you hang out up there for a couple of years. <laughs> Got the wrong podium today, sorry. Um, but yeah, it's not like we you know, hang out there for a couple of years. I know, I'm in a place today, in a zone, I don't know what it is. But um, it's not like you hang out up there for a couple of years and then, you know, you get to trade up or something like that. I mean, you're go- when you go into it, you got what you got when you go into it, right? And so you got gold, you got silver, you got precious stones, or you got wood, you got hay, you got straw. And so the, the encouragement to us of the Scriptures is, do all that you can for Jesus with all the time that you got. Um, and, and, and that'll just add to, right, all that God's going to uh, reward you with. Now, one last thing that I want to share with you today um, about what difference it makes. Well, the afterlife is one thing, and it's also good to know that my afterlife is not determined by my performance, like, I mean, in the sense of whether or not I get into heaven. But then there's another p- part here, and that is the idea of remorse. You know, it's easy just to go through the motions of religion. Show up at church on Sunday, do the Sunday school thing, throw money in the offering plate, sing up front, teach a Sunday school class, whatever it might be. Sit down and have my quiet time, um, whatever it might be. And it can become just going through the motions. It can become what's supposed to be a vital relationship, what's supposed to be this fruit that's just coming out of our lives, flowing freely uh, through the Holy Spirit working through us can become just going through the motions. And there's dry seasons in all of our lives. So I'm, not, I'm not saying because you got going through a dry season in your life that, 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 that you're somehow in disobedience. That's not always the case. Sometimes it's just a dry season. But when remorse is gone, when regret disappears, when the conviction of our heart through the Holy Spirit um, seems silent. Friends, we got a problem. And that's what John's saying here. That's what was trying to draw attention to here with these words. Anybody, he says, who's born of God, who has the seed of the Holy Spirit in them, they won't just keep doing it and doing it and doing it with no remorse, with no regret. He says this is an indicator. Not the cause of, but an indicator. The voice of the Holy Spirit in us is growing more and more distant and more and more distant. And we're beginning to walk real close to that line of stepping outside of belief in the Lord Jesus. We're beginning to trust in ourselves rather than surrendering our lives to him. And so this morning, my appeal to you as we celebrate, as we share around this table, Christ's broken body and his shed blood, is to beg God, God, awaken in me remorse. Awaken in me a healthy sense of regret. There may be stuff in your life that is going on that you need to feel that about. Or it may just be that I just, I just need a fresh flood through the Holy Spirit of remorse and regret, of godly sorrow. And just allow God to wash our hearts, to wash our soul again, clean, to come before him like David did. Saying, Lord, I finally just gave in and cried uncle. And I acknowledged my iniquity before you and you forgave me. Oh, how blessed, how blessed. Receive God's mercy and his grace fresh and new this morning. Let's bow our heads together. Most gracious God, we thank you so much for talking to us today from your word. We thank you for awakening in us some of these feelings that perhaps have grown a little dull, some edges that aren't as sharp as they are, Maybe once were. So Lord, we we invite you, Holy Spirit. It's a courageous thing to pray. To awaken in us a sense of sorrow about our sin. Lord, we know we're going to do it. We, We do it every day. And you're faithful and you're just. And you'll forgive us of our sins. We thank you for that, Lord. But Lord, just today, for a few moments here, through your Holy Spirit's voice, As we celebrate communion, may that sense of godly sorrow spring forth and be born fresh and new in us again. Draw us unto Yourself. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.